As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Soccer Show. My name is Ryan Bailey, and today we're looking at the UEFA Champions League and a little bit of the CONCACAF Champions League. Joining me to do so is a man who likes me asking him to predict future game results as much as Leroy Sani <laughs> likes asking to put a successful final ball into the box. Joe Lowry. <laughs> Hello, Ryan. You're so right. Um, not a not a big predictions guy, but I, I am still a big Leroy Sani guy, even if he struggles with that final ball. How are you, Mr. Bailey? I'm very good indeed, and I realise I've come off the bat kind of insulting you and kind of insulting Leroy <laughs> no, I'm Sane, fine. neither of whom I want to insult because I, I too don't, I think he got, uh, his detractors might have got it slightly wrong uh, for this game we're going to talk about, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I've come off to a negative start there, I'm sorry about that Joe, how are you doing? I am quite well, no sweat, uh, that was funny, I enjoyed it. <laughs> Well, joining Joe and I is a man who is to punditry what an outrageous overhead kick is to consolation goals, Graham Rutherford. Hello, Ryan. How are you? Very good indeed. Thank you. How are you, how are you doing this fine day, Graham? Yep, I am excited to be called up to the big leagues again, like a Scottish Eric Chupamoting. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully I'll do myself justice, just as the ex-Stoke man did last night. I, 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 I do myself justice, but not quite doing enough. That is my MO, after all. All I can say, listeners, is that Graham's agent is one of the best in the game. He's got him on the pod for a second time this week. It's very <laughs> impressive stuff. He's really earning his 15%, I'd say, for this one. Um, I wanted to start off, gents, by talking about this, this period of the Champions League, the quarters and the semis. It's always the best, right? This is always the best period, and we've been treated to one of the best games uh, of recent memory, perhaps this week, which we're going to talk about shortly. But um, what are your thoughts, Graham? Is is because um, the final never quite lives up to being a final. It's always this kind of period where we get the true classics, isn't it? Yeah, and watching this uh, this PSG Bayern game, which we're going to talk about later, I, w- I was thinking back to last year's final, where I thought, why could we not have got one of these two legs in the final? I mean, both excellent games and at the quarterfinal stage, and last 
last year's final, last year's season's final was a little bit of a damp squib, I think it's fair to say. So yeah, these these games definitely it's one of the, the reasons I'm I want to protect the format of the Champions League because yes, I understand the group stages can be a little bit dull at times, a few dead rubbers in there, but it feels like it sets up these these knockout round games. And I understand that the, the, the majority of their focus when they're talking about reformatting the competition is on those group stages. But still, I don't want to mess with it too much just in case there's a knock-on effect and we end up spoiling the, the, the quarterfinals and last 16 and semifinals, which, as you say, tends to be where you get the best games. Exactly so. And, and Joe, it, it feels like it's more than just psychological reasons that would make a final not quite as good as this stage. Well, first of all, Graham, did you say damp squid? Squib. 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 What? What is that? <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I actually, Ryan, what is a squib? Because a lot of people do say squid, <laughs> but that is that is a phrase, right? I've not just made that up. That is a phrase. I, I'm going to embarrass myself. I think it's something to do with construction. A squib is used in construction. It's like an exploding thing. I don't know. It's something. <laughs> it's something I'm going to look up, and so, many people listening will know what it is. And, and um, but it's, it's a legitimate okay. phrase. It's like the catbird seat. Joe, yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Now I get it. So now I get it. So if I, I, if I Google it, and the, and the meaning is a situation or event which is much less impressive than expected. So mm. there you ah, go. I like it. Well, well. To address your question, Ryan, after I've learned something today, thank you, gentlemen. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, finals can sometimes be anticlimactic, and I, part of me wonders if that's because we have these two teams that are able to game plan for each other strictly and focus solely on that one opponent. And they almost end up neutralizing each other. And I'm sure there are other mental factors and other physical factors that go into that as well. And sometimes finals do turn out to be not damp squibs. Thank you. I'll be here all week. (laughs) I'm learning. But I I think this game in particular, this PSG-Bayern game, was sort of a reminder of what last year's Champions League final could have been. And maybe I'm selfish, but I enjoyed it yesterday, uh, even if it meant we didn't get to enjoy it a few months ago. That's not selfish at all. By the way, I just you might have just heard me typing. I've been looking at Google. A squib is an explosive <laughs> device that's used in a wide range of industries from construction to military. And when they get damp, they don't work. So that's ah. where the uh, phrase comes from. I suppose the American alternative might be like a, a wet blanket, a soggy hot dog. Sure, yeah. I don't know, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Soggy hot dog probably be something very different that we don't want to get into on a, on a family <laughs> show. <laughs> on that note, why don't we get into the Champions League? We had Paris Saint-Germain taking on Bayern Munich, a replay of uh, last week's game and indeed last year's final. This one was 3-2 in the first leg. This one finished 1-0 to Bayern Munich and 3-3 on aggregate with the Parisians going through on away goals. Bayern Munich did need to win by two clear goals. They could only manage the one. And PSG in the semi-finals now will face either Man City or Borussia Dortmund. But you, listener, might already know who they're facing depending on when you're listening to this. So, Graham, I'll start off by asking, have you ever seen a team lose a game and not score, yet be so tremendously entertaining as Paris Saint-Germain? <laughs> I can't recall many instances, no. I mean, they were, they, were, they were so, as you say, so entertaining, so exhilarating. I think pretty much down to the performance of the two guys up front, wasn't it? You know, Kylian Mbappe and, and, and Neymar. The number of times that Mbappe in particular was, was getting in behind, um, Bayern Munich again, seemingly going for that high line, but then I don't really know what you do to stop Kylian Mbappe. I actually thought Lucas Hernandez had one of his best games I've ever seen from him, even going back to his Atleti days, just because he had a little bit of pace to stick with Mbappe. Um, but it still felt like he was playing on the edge for for a lot of the match. But 
Yeah, I actually thought as as well as Mbappe and Neymar played, Neymar obviously hitting the uh, the woodwork twice. I thought this was actually a night for PSG's unsung heroes. So players like Danilo Pereira, who was playing in a slightly unfamiliar central defensive position with uh, Marquinhos out injured, or, or, or did he, he, he test positive for COVID? I, it all merges into one, who's out and who's yeah. who's got the virus. Um, Colin Dagba played 35 minutes on a yellow card in the second half against uh, Kingsley Coleman and, and those wide threats did very well. Adrisa Gay, Leandro Paredes, again, and he might not be an unsung hero as such, but a, a, another good performance from him. So when PSG superstars just couldn't find their, their shooting boots, um, they certainly had the chances. It was the, these sort of guys that got them over the line in the end. Joe, I don't know if you saw on the CBS coverage, but Peter Schmeichel, he said uh, after the game that PSG were lucky in this one. And there was me sitting there thinking, were they lucky? I thought they did very well with, uh, as Graham said, not necessarily a full-strength team, not at least not full-strength fullbacks. Uh, hitting the post several times, courtesy of Neymar, hitting the woodwork, I should say. Um, I felt like they were more unlucky than lucky. Is that fair, Joe? Oh, it's totally fair. I completely agree with you, Ryan. The way... Pochettino approached this game for PSG, I thought was brilliant, and the way the players executed, kind of like what Graham was getting at, was phenomenal. They defended in a 4-4-2 block and said, okay, Bayern Munich, you guys need two goals, so you need to win two to nothing to advance, and there could be other score lines and iterations of that. But we're going to say you need two goals to advance if we don't score any at all. You guys are going to have to break us down, and Bayern Munich couldn't do it. Yeah, Chopomoting gets a goal in the 40th minute towards the end of that first half. But Bayern Munich had very little success trying to play through PSG in their set possession. PSG kept their two banks of four tight. Neymar and Mbappe actually put in a really solid defensive shift, I thought, in ways they didn't in the first leg. And then as Bayern Munich would try to shift the ball side to side, they couldn't find space. Every time they'd shift it to one side, maybe Paredes would drop into the defensive line to give PSG a little bit more width. When they would shift it to the other side, Idrissa Gay would drop in between Pereira and Dagba to give them a little bit more width on the right. And so it just kept happening over and over again. Bayern would try to have width with Sané and Coleman or, or Sané and Davies. Maybe Pavard overlapping occasionally, although he stayed more inside. They were trying to have width and exploit and beat PSG out wide, but they just couldn't because of how Pochettino set this team up. I don't think PSG were lucky at all, Ryan. I think they deserved this result, even though they lost. And I think they deserve to move on from this game, even though that that first leg was a bit of a, a tough one for them. Indeed. Joe, I'm just going to pick up on something you just said there. You used the phrases Neymar and defensive shift in the same sentence. Can you uh, <laughs> Can you expand on that a little bit? I, it, it seems wrong, right? It felt dirty to say, but he, he was moving. He was moving around. He and Mbappe were that front two in, uh, in, in PSG's defensive shape. And I read a Michael Cox article this morning and the way he described PSG's regular weakness is that their defensive shape sometimes looks like a four, four, zero, two with the zero <laughs> being the giant gap between Neymar and Mbappe in their midfield line of four. That wasn't the case as much in this game. They stayed largely connected with the big exception being Bayern Munich's goal where Neymar's caught up field after he hits that woodwork I believe for the second time it might have been the first time I don't remember but Neymar's out of position and then all of a sudden PSG are in a little bit of a, of a tough spot defensively but by and large for long stretches of these 90 minutes PSG stayed tight defensively and a lot of credit for that I think should go to Neymar and Mbappe. Yeah, definitely. I, I was impressed by uh, Paris Saint-Germain's defensive performance, I should say. Maybe not for the goal. If you if you look at back at that, there was I think seven PSG shirts in the box to Bayern's four, and just letting you know, not not being too tight on them in that instance, but generally very good. And as we say, uh, um, not, not necessarily a full strength backline either. Graham, 
This team is long has long been touted as a team of individuals, and that might be fair. But we watched this Pochettino PSG side here, you know, playing out from the back, beating the Bayern press, being a lot more cohesive than we might have expected. Is it still even fair to call them a team of individuals when they put out a performance like this? I think this season has has been a, a a big season for PSG, or at least in the Champions League, to change to shift that narrative. Even in the the second leg against Barcelona, which I, again was another instance of uh, an opponent coming to Parc de Prince and, and them not getting a win, but they they didn't they didn't fold in the way that previously PSG might have done. And I think you see it at the end of this one, uh, Neymar, who is always the one targeted for being the most indiv- individual of individuals at PSG, celebrating with his teammates and not kind of making it all about himself and actually looked quite emotional at the end of the match, which I think indicates the, the level of pressure that's on, that's on PSG. I mean, I know Manchester City are in a similar situation where you know, funded by uh, oil money, trying to break the Champions League with big signings. And that's really kind of their, their big objective as a project. I know they're in a similar situation, but it feels like there's there's more there's more of a mental barrier for PSG and that it, they need to get over uh, through these obstacles. And they got through another one again. So Pochettino is the sort of manager who gets players fighting for him. And I think you, you saw that in, in this performance, even players like Julian Draxler, who was completely forgotten about at PSG, I actually think I had literally forgotten he'd <laughs> he was a PSG player, um, and this was a, you know he wasn't the most eye catching player on the pitch, but he's put he's he's putting in performances now, and you're going oh yeah he's actually a decent he's a, he's a decent footballer, and I think that's an indicative of just how Pochettino seems to be getting more out of the squad as a whole. He's still getting the individual performances from Mbappe and Neymar and Di Maria and so on. But he's getting the performances from the, I don't want to call them the little guys, but you know, the, the, what was the old Real Madrid thing that the Zidanez and Pavones? Uh, he's getting performances from the Pavones now. What do those words mean? It was back in the original Galactical era where the, the, the philosophy seemed to be, I think it was called Zidanez y Pavones, which was the Zidans and Pavones. And basically ah. it just meant you get performances from both of them. And that seems apt to describe what's happening at uh, PSG okay. at the moment. Just like not in league on. <laughs> a slightly rude analysis of the Galactico era. If, uh, if there. But, um, you mentioned Draxler. I, uh, Joe, I wanted to point out his opposite number on the other on the other flank there, uh, Angel Di Maria. He seemed to be really important in this win, from what I could see. He seemed to be like the real focal point of the transition whenever they countered. And he is so so good, is he not? Yeah, I think that's a great observation. The way the way PSG would attack. They would sit, they would sit in their own half in that 4-4-2 shape. They'd win the ball and they'd play out of pressure typically, or sometimes they'd play over Bayern Munich's counter pressure. But they'd play out and then they'd almost run these four man fast breaks to use basketball terminology. They just go out in transition so quickly. And the four players that would go, and the three players that would always go certainly was Mbappe, Neymar, and then Angel Di Maria. And sometimes Draxler would join them as that fourth man. But Di Maria played point guard for a lot of those sequences. He drove the ball forward. He played Neymar down the line so that Neymar could then play Mbappe in behind, or, or he just straight up played Mbappe. Di Maria, I took down in my notes, he was, he was the perfect tertiary attacker. He wasn't Neymar or Mbappe in this game. That goes without saying, but he was the perfect fit to complement those two players, to break them out into space, to give them the opportunity to cause Bayern Munich's defense so many problems. Sure, it doesn't turn into a goal in this game, but Di Maria's contributions in the attack were huge, and I think his contributions defensively was were, were really big as well. His willingness to shift and become a part of that 4-4-2 block, 
I couldn't find many things wrong with Di Maria. I mean, he even even terrorized Alfonso Davies a little bit. Davies kept slipping from his left back spot. I think Di Maria was a big part of forcing those slips to actually happen. And then we can blame the grass as well, I guess. But you get the idea. Absolutely. And one other player I wanted to highlight on PSG was Kayla Navas, who put in a very good shift, I'd say. But the time wasting was exquisite. The, you know, the holding on to the ball for 10 seconds, the fading injuries near the end. Oh, I, I thought it was wonderful Champions League uh, knockout round goalkeeping there from, uh, <laughs> from Mr. Navas. Wonderful yeah. stuff. And and he's never he still hasn't lost a two legged Champions League tie that he's played in, which is quite a record wow. given the the clubs that he's played for. <laughs> wow, that's a great stat. Um, let's talk about Bayern Munich as well then. Who once again, uh, Graham, were playing the the high line, which they are sort of renowned for, and uh, and which has its uh, you know has its liabilities in there. But but as you mentioned, Luca Hernandez was quite superb. I think the scoreline might have been higher if not for him, with at least a couple of last ditch tackles he put in, and quite a shift he put in there. But um, but in general, it was. It was then getting caught out again and again, and just some narrow offside decisions going against Paris Saint-Germain that kept the scoreline down. Yeah, and I felt that was one of the, the the things that stopped Bayern Munich from really suffocating PSG. So they had a lot of the ball, and they did have their chances in this game, but it never really felt to me anyway. It never really felt like they were about to bang through, you know, batter through the door. Um, and I think that's just because it's difficult to suffocate a team when you've always got the threat of Mbappe and Neymar breaking in behind. I, I think um, you know it was. It, Hernandez put in one of these, he put in a performance that makes me think next season he could be a key figure for Bayern Munich. It hasn't really worked for him since he's, since he's gone there from Atleti. A lot of that's down to injuries, but with Alaba and, and Boateng leaving at the end of the season, Up Meccano coming in, uh, from RB Leipzig, there is a place in that, in, in, in that, uh, in that starting lineup. And it just made me think maybe, maybe now is, is his time to nail down that, that starting place. I'm a big fan of his. I mean, he can play at left back. Um, he played it a lot there a lot for uh, Atleti. And did he play there for France in the World Cup? I think he might have in the 2018 World Cup. I think that was maybe hit. Yeah. Um, so he he has he he's definitely got pedigree. And um, yeah, I thought this was pretty impressive. But as I say, just that high line was one of the things that stopped them from really applying the pressure on PSG for prolonged periods of the match. Yeah, and Joe, I would argue that something that really stopped Bayern here was they ultimately didn't create enough. Um, you could blame that on a few things. Maybe Chupamoting being a little bit more static. Not He's not Robert Lewandowski, which is a, a pretty harsh criticism to put on any striker, <laughs> to be fair. But, um, you know, um, Thomas Muller in there, do- uh, round-doitering his way around there, didn't quite get the service he needed, it seemed. And I, I sort of attributed that a little bit to Command, uh, Kingsley Command and Sane not quite, uh, you know, being not bringing enough, not putting enough in the box. And Leroy Sane, Joe, seemed to be getting a lot of criticism from what I could see, but I thought that was a bit harsh. I thought he deserved more criticism for the first leg of this where he didn't shoot and didn't do much at all. But um, here, I thought he puts... It was just that final ball into the box that let him down occasionally. But I thought getting getting to that final third, he was pretty good. But it was ultimately that final ball that let him down. Um, but but I don't think he deserves quite the uh, the pelters he's been getting, Joe. It's hard for me to put too much blame on any single Bayern Munich player in the attack because I think if 
if defending Kylian Mbappe with a high line is the hardest thing in soccer, and I think there's an argument to be made for that, the second hardest thing in soccer is breaking down a low defensive block. And PSG came out with a low defensive block. Yeah, there were opportunities for Bayern Munich to break through. There were things that they could have done with the ball to break through. Maybe they rotated a little faster from side to side. Maybe they try to play through the lines a little bit more. But it sounds easy from where I'm sitting right now. But to actually put that into practice over the course of 90 minutes is really hard. So PSG came out and, and they made Bayern Munich's life miserable. They made Leroy Sané's life miserable. They made uh, Kingsley Coleman's life miserable. And there just wasn't a lot of space for those guys out wide to actually do anything. If they would beat you know, the fullback defending on their side, then they'd run into either a central, central defensive midfielder or a center back sliding over to deal with them as well. The space was so limited in those wide areas and it was limited centrally too because of how many numbers PSG had back. So... Man, yeah, certainly wasn't Sané or Coman's best game from those wide areas. Thomas Muller's either, even though he did find some nice pockets in the box. It's just, it's an incredibly difficult situation if you're Bayern Munich to go out there and break down that block. And Joe, do you think Hansi Flick could have done anything differently here? Um, one thing that I couldn't quite get my head around was the substitution when they were chasing yeah. the goal at the end. Martinez for Chupamoting. Did that make sense? I, on paper, no. Bayern Munich didn't have a ton of other attacking options besides Musiala on their bench. If we, if we look at that group, it was a short bench for Bayern Munich. First of all, they're still missing guys due to injury and due to COVID-19. So, yeah, I mean, you can you can argue about that one and go back and forth on that. Was that the right call? Was it not? Probably not, but I'm not sure who else would have gone in instead in that situation. Bayern Munich maybe could have pressed a little bit more aggressively after they lost the ball, but they still tried to do that, and that's why we see the high line, so that they can compress the field and really stifle the other team as they're trying to counterattack. It's hard to do that when you're playing uh, Leandro Paredes in the other midfield. Paredes can pass through you. He can stay composed on the ball. He can stay composed under pressure. He can find an outlet, and then, and then the other team's off. PSG's off. So... We can say Bayern Munich could have done this or they could have done that, but I think the truth is they came up against a, a better team in this leg. Maybe not in the first leg, but they came up against a better team in this leg with a well-executed game plan. Well, they certainly did. I think we can probably all agree that the, the best team got through here. Maybe not everybody would agree with that, but that's certainly my standpoint here. And that this was probably a classic Champions League knockout fixture, if you count the both legs uh, with it. I was trying to think of ones I've enjoyed more, and going back a few years, maybe that Man City-Spurs game with the high scoring, was it 4-4, something insane like that? Yeah, that, that season had a few. There was the, the Ajax-Spurs one that season That's as well, and then my United-PSG uh, all in that same season was quite crazy. <laughs> That's right. That Was was that two seasons ago? The years are blurry. Yeah. Years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and any more on this game, gents? Before we move on, I think um, I think we've done it justice. But uh, a really, really, really enjoyable. Uh, this this feels like the reason why we watch this game. That game, yeah. to be honest, S- sitting there, I was like just really enjoying myself watching that game. Thinking I've watched a lot of bad games, and we we may be <laughs> talking talking about one very shortly. But um, <laughs> that felt like wow. This is why we love this sport, Graham. Yeah, it was a fantastic game. Just just to pick up a little bit on the substitution of uh, Martinez, I think that was quite reflective of this situation that Hansi Flick seems to be facing. That that he uh, he's unhappy with the, the the squad is not as strong as it was last season, and he's unhappy with some of the signings that have been made or the lack of signings that have been made. And you know how sometimes before a transfer window, a manager will pick a you know a sixteen year old for the bench to prove that he doesn't have the options and to send a message to the board. Um, I don't think it was this, but it, it was a little bit like it was a little bit like that where he was making a point to the board of well, this is what you've given me as backup to Robert Lewandowski. I'm having to put on Yahweh Martinez to get on the end of crosses, but 
it's 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 quite remarkable how that situation. I don't know if you've been following it, but how that situation has accelerated so much. I think last week on the pod, if you'd asked me if Hansi Flick would be in charge of Bayern Munich next season, I probably would have said yes. But now it seems almost like a foregone conclusion from the reports in Germany that he will be out there in the summer. Um, so it's just it, as I say, it's just accelerated very quickly. Do you know who's been lined up, Graham, for the for the gig? Um, it's not your uh, Schalke uh, favourite former manager, uh, player, boss. Who is it? Was it? Was he called again? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that would be not. some fight. Man. No, it's not <laughs> Christian Ghost. I know. I've not seen it. I've not seen any reports. I, I, I mean, the the, the um, I suppose you'd say Julian Nagelsmann as a front runner, but I, I've not seen. I don't know. What, obviously, that depends on whether Bayern Munich are willing to stump up the compensation or. I don't know, but it, it does very much seem like he's heading out. He's going to be the Germany boss after uh, Yogi Lowe. So yeah, that would be interesting to see they get in after after Flick. I think Nagelsmann's probably number one on a lot of other teams' lists, to be fair, but Bayern would, would have to be a, a front-runner for him, you would say. Joe, any more on this game before we move on? Uh, by the way, that, that substitution you described there with Martinez, due promoting Graham, that feels like... Um, the high stakes equivalent of Pep not not naming all of his subs on his bench, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Joe, any more from you, sir? I could add other things, but everything I say means that we have to wait longer before we talk about Christian Pulisic, so I'm just going to stop here. <laughs> and with that, we will take a break for some messages and we'll be back with some Pulisic updates. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, we are back. Let's talk about the other game that surely you only watched if you were a Chelsea or a Porto fan. Chelsea against Porto. Uh, Chelsea were the home team in this one, despite it taking place in Seville, as did the first leg. Uh, 2-1 on aggregate to Chelsea. This one finished with a 1-0 win for Porto uh, late in the game, getting a very interesting or fantastic goal that did Porto in this one. Not a great game, gentlemen, is how I would sort of summarise this one. But Chelsea, all the same, will go through and face either Real Madrid or Liverpool. And listener, once again, you probably know who they will face. Joe, this seemed to me like Chelsea just looked pretty comfortable in this game. It felt like Porto were a bigger threat from what I could see in the first leg here. They didn't quite bring it, despite having uh, players that they didn't have in the first leg, like Oliveira and um, uh, Taremi, uh, available. I thought I, I, I hoped for a little more from Porto. Is that fair, Joe? Yeah, it's fair. The script flipped from the first leg. In the first leg, Porto sat back and said to Chelsea, you guys break us down. And as it turns out, Chelsea did break them down off of one individual mistake for that second goal from Ben Chilwell, or from uh, Tecatito, excuse me. And then, you know, one more team collective goal for that first goal around the 30th minute in the first leg. So Chelsea, Chelsea was comfortable coming into this game. They could say, okay, we don't need to control the ball for 90 minutes like we did in the first leg. Porto, you can have it. We dare you to do something with it. And as it turns out, outside of a bicycle kick and a couple other chances, you know, slight half chances throughout the game, 
Porto really couldn't do anything with the ball. They've shown in this competition under Sergio Conceição that they're a really good defensive team, a really, really good defensive team, in my view at least. But with the ball and when when the team gives them the, gives them the ball and forces them to create chances with it, they're not as good in possession. They're good in transition. They're good defensively. But when they have the ball, it's hard for them to actually create things. And I think we saw that come out in this game. And as a result, it turns in, it turns into a little bit more of a slower, sluggish, sluggish clash. Yeah, it feels like Chelsea have played Atletico Madrid and the upgraded version of Atletico <laughs> yeah. Madrid in Porto here, doesn't it, Graham? <laughs> because they they were, as as uh, Joe said, you know, very very solid defensively, and also the poop housery was on form once again for them. Lots of you know uh, rolling around and protesting, lots of uh, uh, you know injury injury causing fouls, and we can talk about Pulisic in a minute, who definitely seemed to be targeted by Porto. Um, but but Graham, do you agree there that it's it wasn't quite as they didn't quite have the spark that I thought they would have uh, in this? They I mean they 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 were pressing high to start off with at least, and they tried to you know create a little bit of chaos to get this thing going. But it just seemed like Chelsea were pretty good at snuffing them out at every opportunity. Yeah, and and not only does it seem like Chelsea are playing the same team over and over in the Champions League, they're playing in the same stadium. <laughs> <laughs> Chelsea might as well just start buying property in Seville to, for when they for when they have to visit every few few weeks. But yeah, I certainly expected more from Porto. I, I know that of the, the of the type of team they are. I, I think I expected them to to start the way they did. I'm just bemused that uh, Conscao didn't cha- change it up really until he he throws on uh, Taremi for on 63 minutes. I feel I feel like that change could have happened at halftime just to give a little bit of more support to Marega, who was doing, he put in one hell of a shift, but was struggling to, to do it all on his own. And, and as we saw with the, the bicycle kick, I mean, you can never <laughs> count on a bicycle kick to get your goal, but nonetheless, he comes up with something to, 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 to get a goal back for Porto. That, that could have happened earlier in the match. And even if it happened just a few minutes earlier, you might have had a, a grandstand finale, but. I felt that the Porto did a decent job of pressing on Chelsea and 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 kind of denying um, Jorginho and and, and Kante uh, as the as the two number sixes in the middle of the of the pitch, denying them the ball. I think they did a good job of that. I thought Jorginho in particular didn't have he had a, a pretty uncomfortable evening in, in in the first half, especially. So there was enough in Porto's performance for me to suggest for for them to suggest to me that. They could have stepped up. It was just frustrating that they didn't until the last few minutes. Yeah. Sorry, Graham. I was just writing out my notes for my script idea for the uh, Chelsea Groundhog Day movie, which I'm going to now <laughs> produce about them constantly playing uh, in Seville. And by the way, I think the reason why they play so many of these games uh, in Seville is because uh, UEFA has made a deal with COVID-19 that it can't get you in southern Spain. I think that's why <laughs> yes. it's, it's the safest possible place for uh, these teams to play. That must be the logic that they're employing here. Uh, Joe... Um, as I mentioned, like they had Oliver and, and Taremi available for this game, did Porto. Why didn't Taremi start this one? Ah, man, I wish I was Sergio Conceição and I could tell you. Maybe there's a fitness thing going on there. Maybe tactically Conceição just thought the kind of asymmetrical 4-3-3 that he drew up for this game. Maybe he thought that was the best option. If you put Taremi in, the shape likely changes to a 4-4-2 in possession. And maybe that front three with Tecatito Corona on the right, Marega in the middle, and Otavio on the left. Maybe Conceição thought that was the best lineup in the attack to actually go at Chelsea, find space in between their back five, and then neutralize that back five and break into the box. I don't know why we don't see Taremi start. I do agree with you, fellas. Hindsight is twenty twenty, of course, but saying 
saying that Taremi could have gone on, come on at halftime and that might have changed this game, that feels right to me because if you're Porto, you don't have anything to lose. You need multiple goals in this game. You need at least two goals to send it you know, to, to extra time here. And when you don't allow yourself that extra 15 or 18 minutes to change the, the scoreline, change that nil-nil deadlock, you kind of you kind of put yourself in a little bit of a hole, and so yeah, hindsight obviously, but I, I can see the logic behind maybe getting another forward on a little bit sooner in this one. Yeah, and with Thomas Tuchel here, it seemed like a pretty professional performance he put out for Chelsea. Good game management. Once again, one of those games you could argue that maybe Frank Lampard wouldn't have been able to mastermind, although it's uh, hindsight 2020 once again, easy to say. Uh, Graham, Christian Pulisic, who was part of the front three here. Pulisic seems to be on this run of pretty impressive performances, and I'd say he had he um, had one here as well. Uh, looking at the stats, he was fouled, uh, so he drew 11 million fouls. Sorry, 11 fouls. <laughs> it felt like 11 million um it seemed like they targeted him just a just a tad yeah yeah watching this back it, it, it certainly did seem that way I, I said I think even a, a couple of weeks ago I think I said to Taylor that I had a I had a, a bad feeling about Pulisic under Tuchel at Chelsea and I feel like a lot has changed since then <laughs> he is uh he's in good form I feel like uh Tuchel is quite likes him in that front three and with good reason he's put in a lot of good performances but Yes, um, I feel like it's it's cruel to deny Joe his his bit on Pulisic here, so I might pass <laughs> the mic to to him uh, to give the American perspective, which is what the listeners want. <laughs> Graham, you are you're too kind. Yeah, Ryan, I'm only slightly offended that you threw that to Graham first and not to me, but it's fine. I, I'm not. I'll get over it. I didn't okay, want to appear it. like I was being nationalist in any way. <laughs> okay. so that's what it was. Well played. Well played, Ryan. Good recovery. <laughs> Christian Pulisic was fouled 11 times, as you said, Ryan Bailey. That was the most fouls that any player had suffered, according to Paul Carr, the stats guru on Twitter. It's the most fouls that any player had suffered in a UCL game since Lionel Messi against Real Madrid in 2011. Christian Pulisic drew three yellow cards in the second half alone. None of the first half, but it sounds more impressive when I say it that way. Three yellow cards in the second half alone. One from Pepe, one from Oliveira, and one from substitute Luis Diaz. That's insane. 11,003 yellow cards. Pulisic was doing so much of the ball progression for Chelsea. He was picking up the ball in deeper spaces and then driving it forward, playing an outlet ball into Mason Mount on the left or into Kai Havertz or just taking the ball forward himself and then getting chopped down. His shin or or kind of down by his ankle in this game, I think I saw a picture on Twitter, had a pretty sizable gash in it. He got the little man of the match trophy, I believe. Christian Pulisic did... A lot of things, well, even besides, even outside of being fouled so much in this game, offensively, as I mentioned, he was a linchpin in this Chelsea attack when they would go forward. And then defensively, he was a big part of trying to contain Porto and, and largely doing that in this one. I thought, I thought Christian Pulisic had one of his best games in a long time. Yeah, I, I, I would be inclined to agree with that. And Joe, what did you make of the front three with Mount, Pulisic and Havertz combining in this one? Obviously, that combination has been picked for specific reasons and... um you could argue in a game where Jorginho and Conte maybe were the shining lights that it, it, it reflects the fact that the, you know there wasn't a true outstanding performance in that front three. But we had a situation where Werner was an unused substitute and we had Ziyech and Giroud coming on later on for Mount and Havertz. Um, what did you make of that, that, that combination and how, does, it, does it tell us anything about what Tuchel's going to keep doing? I don't know if it tells us anything about what Tuchel's going to keep doing. Although, Ryan, you asked me on the last Champions League show we did if 
Christian Pulisic with his performance off the bench now would be in line for more starts. I said no, and look where we are now. He's starting multiple <laughs> games in a row. So what do I know, right? But we see we see a lot of positional interchanging between this front three. Sometimes Pulisic pops up on the left. Sometimes he pops up on the right, which is where he actually started this game. Sometimes Mount does that same thing. Sometimes Pulisic goes centrally or Mount goes centrally, and Kai Havertz drops to the wing. That's been a theme under Tuchel, regardless of who that front three is, especially when it's not... A, a classic, strong, tall number nine. Not that Kai Havertz isn't those, isn't those things, but he's not the, he's not positionally inflexible as a number nine in the way that maybe Olivier Giroud is. We see those three players, especially when Havertz is that nine. We see them interchange and rotate and move around. I think that's an asset for Tuchel. I think he likes that. And then also you have the defensive work rate of these guys, especially Mason Mount. He's always covering ground. He's a key in their press. So I, I can see the reason behind why Tuchel goes for these players. Is that indicative of what's going to happen in the next game? Who knows? Yeah, that was a tough question. I admit that. Sorry about that, Joe. And, <laughs> <No>. um, <laughs> and Graham, and I mentioned there, Jorginho and Kante. It just seemed like the, the, the engine of this team was purring, so to speak, in this game. Kante seemed like classic Kante, doing lots of running, uh, you know, almost Leicester, Leicester Kante we're seeing here, and Jorginho doing what he was purchased for, essentially. I am so pleased that N'Golo Kante is back. And I think it's safe to say that he is back. It's been, he's, he's had the misfortune of... Uh, since um, Antonio Conte of having uh, managers who who didn't really seem to buy into what he was, but it, it seems like Tuchel knows how to get the best out of him, and so I'm I, I am I'm very pleased to see him play well. But this game, sorry to take it back to the to the attack, but this game, and this might be an overly simplistic view, but watching this game, I, I just felt like this was the sort of match where, and I'm a massive Kai Havertz fan, and not only am I a massive Kai Havertz fan, I've been calling for him all season until. Tuchel started doing it to, to be played through the center. So I think that's a position where he, he can thrive. But watching this game, it was it, one of the things I thought about was Chelsea could really do with a 20 goal a season striker who in a game like this just puts away a chance and bang, you're through into the next round and you don't have those nervy few moments at the end because as, as much as Tuchel has undoubtedly strengthened Chelsea as a defensive out, out, uh, outfit, and that will take them far in the Champions League, where that is a, a that control and that solidity is is very important. Just having that guy who, as I say, can just convert a half chance and get them out of there is very very valuable. And I do wonder against higher caliber teams, not to uh, show any disrespect to Porto, but you know, ne- next up is uh, who are Chelsea going to have in the net? Dortmund. Real Madrid or Liverpool, of course. Um, yeah, so that's a big step up. And I just wonder if the, a lack of that player might cost them. That was just one of the takeaways I took from this game. Some might say, Graham, that they have that player. He's very handsome and French and he came on in the 91st <laughs> minute. Yeah, or the, or the young English striker who scored 15 Premier League goals last season who watched the full match from the bench. <laughs> but for whatever reason, Tuchel just doesn't really seem to fancy either of those. So I guess what I'm saying is he needs maybe a, a true goal scorer, and I accept this is quite a simplistic view, but he maybe needs a true goal scorer, uh, a fox in the box, if you will, just to stick away a chance that he likes, someone he likes. <laughs> I had completely forgotten about Tammy there until you just mentioned him, Graham. That's crazy. Well. Look how far yeah. we've come. Um, I've got a sneaky feeling, Joe, and I know you love me uh, talking about predictions of what's going to happen in the coming weeks, but I I just feel like Chelsea might win this whole thing. Is that too crazy to say? I feel like if they can get this far and they can be this... It, it feel, I'm getting shades of 2012 is what I'm saying, I suppose. Not necessarily being the best or most technical team in the competition, but just getting it done. I've got a feeling they could go all the way. 
I mean, they're only a couple of games away from actually making that happen and turning that feeling into a reality, Ryan. They, they're into the semifinals, which I would not have predicted. And I'm glad no. you didn't ask me that, you know, whenever we would have made that prediction. I probably did but ask you. Th- <laughs> Maybe you did. They're into the semifinals at this point, and they've put in you, – you used the word professional to talk about this performance from them, Ryan, and I, I'm with that 100%. I use the same word in my notes. They put in a professional performance in this game against Porto, and the first leg, I didn't think they did a lot of great things with the ball, but at the end of the day, they scored two goals against a really defensive Porto team, and that in itself is an impressive feat. They they you know beat Atletico Madrid in the round before that. They've done really well in the knockout stage of this competition – is there any reason why they couldn't go on to beat the winner of Liverpool-Real Madrid? No, it's it seems totally possible to me, Ryan. Right, and what happens if Tuchel beats PSG in the final? Would that be too much narrative? Would would soccer just explode if yeah, that happens? I think we're we're in tenet, and there's a there's a temporal pincer movement, and the world implodes. I think if that happens, <laughs> yeah. that's probably yeah. Okay. yeah. <laughs> uh, Graham, you have any more to say on this game before we move on? Uh, not really. I think I'll forget about this game rather quickly. <laughs> there's too much. There's too, there's just too too many good games for that to linger on this one too much. I think. I think we had a couple of match days last week where it was it was annoying where two really good games were happening at the same time. Didn't quite get that sensation this week, and I'm glad I I, uh, I picked the PSG buy and I didn't take the hipster choice and watch Chelsea Porto uh, for this one. Joe, any any more on this game? No, I'm good, Ryan. All right, with that then, we take a quick break and we'll start covering some CONCACAF activities. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, we are back. It's time to turn our attention to CONCACAF. Graham is uh, shivering with excitement as I say that, uh, <laughs> no doubt, because as we discussed uh, earlier off mic, Graham, you can't even watch these games in Europe, is that correct? That is correct, and a lot of the highlights are geo-blocked as well. Oh, wonderful! <laughs> so it is it is quite difficult for me to uh, catch up what's with, with what's happening in the old uh, Concacaf Champions League, but I have done my best. Perhaps we shall lean on uh, Concacaf Daddy Joe Lowry for, yeah. uh, for this segment. Then, <laughs> uh, why don't we start off, Joe, with um, Atlanta against Alajuelense? Did I get that, Alajuelense? Yeah, I think you were close. Yeah, we're gonna, we're going to call it good. Thanks, bud. All right. Well, they got a 2-0, um, 2-0 aggregate win, did Atlanta, with another 1-0 victory against uh, their Costa Rican opposition here. Gabriel Hintza? How do we go with that one now? I'm, I'm <laughs> struggling with pronunciations today. I'm so sorry, Joe. What, uh, let's let's I, go I Hintze. Hintze, because I was going with the Germanic Heinze, and I'm very much willing to accept I was wrong with that. Anyway, his side uh, getting into the Champions League quarterfinals with this uh, last-minute goal from Jurgen, and I'd say damn, but I think it was it was more like a dam on the uh, on the on the on the comms on the uh, 
footage that I watched. So I'm just I'm all over the place here. But this game, <laughs> incidentally, was um, played at venue. Uh, the venue was the Fifth Third Bank Stadium in Kennesaw, just outside of Atlanta, which is where Atlanta have played a few Champions League games before, and I think the USL team plays there too. So not at the big stadium, but still a pretty big night for Atlanta, Joe. Yeah, absolutely. It was not a good performance from Atlanta United, but it was a good result for Atlanta United. They come out in their second game ever under Gabriel Hinze, or their second actual game, preseason games excluded, under Hinze. And they look worse than they did in the first half of the first leg against Alajuelense. They come out and they play a roughly similar shape. Santiago Sosa, their number six, drops drops less between the two center backs because Alajuelense are defending in a 4-5-1. And so he doesn't need to, to drop between those two center backs because Miles Robinson and Anton Walks already have that plus one advantage against the, the top defender of their opponents. And so we see Sosa a little bit higher up in midfield. I think he has a phenomenal game. But Atlanta overall, they move the ball more slowly. They look a little bit more sluggish with their positional rotations. They don't look as assertive in this game as they did in that first 45 minutes of the first leg. Which surprised me a little bit. I thought they would come out and look sharper and look even cleaner, and I'd feel more encouraged about the direction of this team. I don't, but that doesn't mean the sky is falling. There's still plenty of time this year. But this Atlanta team looked like Frank DeBoer was still coaching, and that's that's not exactly what you want. But again, there's plenty of time here. <laughs> there is plenty of time indeed. Yeah, not quite as fun as the first leg. Not as many shots, I think, but maybe picking up in the second half a little bit did this game. Uh, Joseph Martin, is, if I'm not mistaken, Joe, it was his first start uh, back since his injury. Uh, any other uh, key men you want to uh, pick out here from Atlanta? To quickly highlight Martinez there, he didn't really do much of anything, and that's okay as well. I, I guess I'm just coming out of this game feeling pretty okay about everything. It's not time to overreact. He gets that first start since coming back from the ACL tear, and he drops in a lot, and I think that's notable with how Hinze wants to play. We saw it with Lissandro Lopez in the first leg down in Costa Rica. We saw it again with Joseph Martinez. He'll drop in to provide an outlet for the midfielders and to, to kind of vacate that space for the opposing center backs and then draw them forward or have someone else run in behind. He did a lot of that, but he didn't get on the ball a lot. So that's something to monitor down the line. I thought Marcelino Moreno was an interesting player to watch. It was his first game under Hinze as well. He was suspended for the first leg after a red card in CCO at the end of last season. And he played a more right wing spot with Brooks Lennon as the right back on Atlanta's right side. And I thought he looked technical. I thought he looked bright. We got a little bit of a look at him last year when Atlanta brought him in towards the end of the season under Stephen Glass when he was the interim manager of the club in 2020. And he looked dangerous. He looked technical. He looked like he was able to break someone down. We didn't see Moreno do much of that in terms of final product or end product, but he was still bright on that right side opposite of Barco underneath Joseph Martinez. Joe, can I ask you a question about Joseph Martinez? Sorry, Ryan, to, to jump in there, but yeah, how much, with the start of the, of MLS coming up this weekend, the new season, how, how much pressure do you think there is on him? And what did we learn from this match? for him to deliver the goals for Atlanta just because I'm I'm, I'm looking kind of at, at where goals might come elsewhere in that team and I know they've brought in Lissandro Lopez um, but looking at his recent goal scoring figures he's not been pulling up any trees so how much pressure is on, on Martinez to pick up where he left off a year ago and if he doesn't is that a problem for Atlanta? There's a lot of pressure, right? You look at this roster, Graham, and I think that's a great question because who else is going to be scoring that goal, scoring those goals? Is it going to be Lopez? He might get 10 this season, maybe, maybe less. I, w- I would be surprised if it was much more than that, playing as that backup number nine. And then 
pretty much after that, you're looking at Ezekiel Barco, and he is still a bit of an enigma in Atlanta. He hasn't been the player that Atlanta United needed him to be when they spent double-digit millions on him. Joseph Martinez is the guy, and they really missed him last year when he was out with that ACL tear. Adam John couldn't get the job done as that number nine, which wasn't entirely surprising at an MLS level. But Joseph Martinez is the guy in this team. He wore the captain's armband in this game. It will not be surprising. It will not be the end of the world if Joseph Martinez starts slowly this season. I want to clarify that. He's coming off of the injury. They're all learning. All of Atlanta's players are learning this new system. It's going to take time for things to click on a personal level for Joseph Martinez and on a team level for Atlanta. But if he's not scoring goals towards the end of the season, just based off of how this Atlanta roster is constructed, unless Moreno or Barco or, or Jurgen Damm are are picking up the slack, it might be a, a big problem for Atlanta United. Um, you mentioned Barco there, Joe. Uh, something that amused me was on the goal, Jochen Dahm's goal uh, in, in injury time. It looked like Dahm just stole the ball off of Barco's toe <laughs> to, 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 to finish it there. If I was him, and he, when he watched Barco, he sort of ran off celebrating in a very much an opposite yeah. direction. He, <laughs> I don't know if he was a bit annoyed by that situation. Barco was 100% trying to round the keeper in this instance. He's in on on the break, and he's trying to take a touch to his right to get around the keeper and finish himself to get that game winner. The tie was already won, more or less, at this point. But he takes a bit of a heavy touch, and uh, Jurgen Dahm just comes in. He's in the right spot and takes the ball. And if you watch the replay, they showed a certain angle on the world feed that had Barco's eyes just 100% focused on what was happening, not even seeing Jurgen Dom. And then as Dom comes in, or right before Dom comes in to take the ball, you can see Barco's eyes finally recognize that he's there and realize, I'm not actually going to score this goal, am I? And so Jurgen Dom takes the ball and finishes it off. Atlanta get the result, and it's kind of all they needed. They're into the quarterfinals yet again as a club, and you can't really ask for a whole lot more than that. I mean, I guess you could, but you might be being a bit greedy. You might be, and uh, uh, Philadelphia Union could be the quarterfinal opponent, right? Yeah. Yeah, Atlanta play the winner of Saprissa in Philadelphia. Philadelphia have the edge after that first leg that was played in Costa Rica. We'll find out who they're going to be playing after today's matches as we're recording on Wednesday. I kind of hope it's it's Atlanta-Philly. We get a little extra MLS action in CCL. I'm here for it. Yeah, why not? That sounds exciting to me. And uh, Atlanta, of course, preparing for their season opener. I want to say it's Orlando this weekend. I yes, think sir. That's correct. Orlando. Um, a quick note on Alajuelense, who uh, one, my observation was that they have an incredible amount of sponsors on their kit. Very impressive. They <laughs> space out for all those commercial opportunities. But I, I read that they were missing six players because of they failed to secure visas for this one. Only four starters from the first leg. So I imagine, Joe, that affected uh, their output somewhat. Yeah, they were missing a handful of guys, as you mentioned, including but not limited to Brian Ruiz, who is a player that I'm sure the three of us are familiar with. He He's a creative player for them, and losing a guy like that when you need a goal is a tough situation. He can break you down in possession. He can attack in transition. And the same goes for a couple of the other guys that were left off of their roster. It's a tough situation. It, it looked like negligence in terms of how, how Alajualense approached getting visas. They were a little bit slow in responding to... Uh, to the need to actually acquire the, that paperwork and, and get everything in order. So it, it ended up being a tough situation for them. It, it kind of feels like it could have been avoided with a bit more uh, timely bookkeeping and timely housekeeping, but uh, it's in the past now and Atlanta United is through. They are indeed, as are Portland, Joe, who took on Honduras's Maraton. Uh, this one, I believe, was 2-2 in the first leg. Uh, a, a healthy 5-0 here 
in the uh, evening sun in in uh, Providence Park here. Um, the first game in over a year with fans at Providence Park, by the way. Um, what, did, what did you make of this one, Joe? A pretty dominant performance with uh, Jimmy uh, Chara getting a hat-trick here. Um, the first uh, hat-trick of the MLS era for him and um, the second MLS player to get a hat-trick in uh, CONCACAF Champions League as well. I'll talk about Jimmy Chara in just a minute. I don't want to come at you, Ryan, or I don't want to come at the Fox broadcasters, but I do just want to clarify something. This was not the first game with fans at Providence Park. The Portland Thorns and NWSL would like a word okay. with uh, with the folks who spread that. I, I know I know you didn't spread that misinformation, Ryan. I just I, I want to give NWSL their due there. So I should I should have specified Tim, tangent. but you're quite right. Yeah, sorry. No, no, it's all good. I just want to clarify for all the women's soccer fans out there as well. Absolutely. Portland looked good. I man, I've I've gone on my diatribe and I've forgotten your question, Ryan. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go and stop me if if <laughs> I uh, go too far off. I didn't off. really give you a question. I just said <laughs> perfect yeah, about it. Perfect. Portland looked very good in this game, and they should, right? They're better than Marathon. They're better than they showed in that first leg. Even in the first leg, they created a lot of chances that they didn't convert down in Honduras. The field conditions were really bad. The grass was long. The weather was sticky. The grass was wet. It's it's a tough situation to go and, and get a result in CONCACAF. And ultimately, they got a result in the first leg. And they come back home. They move the ball much better in this game. They create a ton of chances. Jimmy Chara gets that hat trick. Two goals in the first half, one in the second half. Dyron Aspria. The oftentimes a forgotten man for the Portland Timbers, but he always does seem to pop back up in big games. He terrorized the right side of Marathon's defense. He dribbled coast to coast pretty much on Portland's first goal before cutting the ball back into the box that eventually got to Jimmy Chara. He was really good on that left side. And another guy I thought was was brilliant was Eric Williamson. The, one of the midfielders who was left off of Jason Kreiss's U23 Olympic qualifying roster last month. He showed why that looks like such a bad call from Kreiss. He was really bright in the first half, checking his shoulders, dealing with pressure, playing some nice forward passes, drawing fouls, making runs into the box. He did just about everything you could have asked for in this game. And I think Williamson was a big part of why Portland played so well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a, a solid performance from the Timbers here who could face Joe um, Club America in the quarterfinals. I imagine that would be a, a bit of a, a challenge for them. <laughs> yeah, they play the winner of Club America and Olympia. But as you're saying, it's it's likely going to be Club America. That's going to be a tough game for them. But I will say, a lot of people, and myself included, in MLS circles are pretty high on this Timbers team. They have attacking talent. Even in this game, they're still missing Jeremy Abobasi, who probably would have started at left wing over Aspria if he was healthy and ready to go. They're also missing Sebastian Blanco, who actually, now that I'm saying it, he would have started at left wing in this game. So they have attacking talent who who wasn't included, players that who weren't included in this group. Savarese has a strong team. Is that team good enough to beat Club America? Probably not. There you go, Ryan. I'm throwing in a prediction there for you. You didn't Ooh. even have to ask me. But <laughs> I, I do think this Timbers team has talent, and they could do some things that will cause Club America or whoever wins that matchup between Club America and Olympia. They're going to do some things that will cause the winner of that tie some problems in the quarterfinals. I caught I caught some of the, the clips on, on Twitter of this game. I was so pleased to see Timber Joey back. It feels like... <laughs> yes. uh, Feels like nature is healing, or in his case, nature is dying, I suppose, uh, <laughs> given his job. But yes, feels very much like we're getting back to normal now. The sound of the <laughs> chainsaw cutting through uh, a tree was a refreshing, a refreshing noise in my ears. Graham, you're so right. <laughs> that's right. Soccer is back when you hear the chainsaw. I guess that's what we can say for that one. Um, any more on this game or indeed any other games, gents? Uh, Graham, I know this one was virtually impossible for you to watch, but uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anything else? 
No, I, I'm just really, I am actually really excited about the MLS season, which is a lot easier for me to uh, catch coverage of. It's, it's shown on live, live on television, like a real league over here, <laughs> uh, which is, which is good. So I am, I am really excited. And I think I said in a previous podcast, I think because 2020 was, I think MLS, there's a, there's a strong case that MLS was imp- impacted more than any other league. Um, because obviously they changed the whole format of the, of the whole season with the, the bubble tournament, of course. Um, so yeah, it feels like it's been like a year without MLS. So I'm excited. Yeah, and it, it will be a slightly different season, of course. This season we've got the Canadian teams. I think or at least one of them's based in Florida, and um, the fans gently creeping back into the stands. So things will be returning to normal. Joe, anything else from you, sir, before we wrap this one up? Yeah, like Graham, I'm stoked for MLS. Starts on Friday, just a couple of days from now. I'm stoked for the rest of the Champions League games, both UCL and CCL, that we're going to talk about tomorrow. But no, I I have exhausted my thoughts from yesterday. I think we all have. That's wonderful stuff, gents. This show was anything but a damp squib, I would say. (laughs) Joe Lowry, as always, it's been a pleasure talking to you, sir. Thank you very much. Of course, Mr. Bailey. Graham, thank you for hanging with us for the second time this week. Maybe you get that agent talking and you'll get three shows in a week. Who knows? (laughs) Who knows? Thanks, Ryan. (laughs) Goodbye, everybody. (laughs) 